Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SOT Talk Radio Network's Health and Wellness Show. Today is Monday, March the 30th. I'm your host, Tiffany. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the world is Dr. Gabby and Erica. Our regular host, Jonathan, is hard at work behind the scenes on engineering duties today, and Doug will be back next week. Uh, We have a great show for you all today. Um, If we can work out our technical difficulties, joining us from Germany is our very special guest. His name is Dr. Klaus Kernlein. He's the co-author of the fascinating book, Virus Mania, How the Medical Industry Continually Invents Epidemics, Making Billion-Dollar Profits at Our Expense. Dr. Kernlein is a medical specialist of internal diseases. He completed his residency in the oncology department at the University of Kyle, Uh, Since 1993, he's worked in his own medical practice, treating hepatitis C and AIDS patients who are skeptical of antiviral medications. He's also featured in the riveting documentary, House of Numbers, Anatomy of an Epidemic, which exposes and rewrites the HIV-AIDS epidemic. So we're going to try and get Dr. Kernlein on the line with us. We're having some difficulties, so if you guys want to just chit-chat for a moment about the book or we can go to the pet health segment. Yeah, well, I want to say that uh, I found the book fascinating, Red Virus uh, Virus Mania, because it just addresses what mainstream medicine doesn't address, and which is so important, you know, for all infectious diseases, which is like environmental toxicity and how it, you know, is such a tremendous stress and has such a huge role in our health, you know, and weakens our body and makes it susceptible. So that's from a point of view. I really enjoy the book. Yes, I enjoyed the book as well. I found it so informative and actually a very easy read. There's lots of great photographs and um, historical documents included in the book. So you can read a couple of pages and then there's actually documentation about what the author and the journalist is putting forth. It's fascinating. Uh, Hold on a moment. Uh, Dr. Kernline, are you there? Let's see if we can. Hello? Hello, Dr. Kernline. Yeah, hello, Tiffany. Hello. Yeah. Welcome to our South just... Radio Health and Wellness Show. Hello? Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I just, I just wrote you a mail that the internet doesn't work. Oh, your internet. Hello? Yes, I'm I'm here. I can hear you. I heard you say that your internet was off. We can hear you now. 
Hello? Are you there? Oh, geez. I think we lost we're gonna him. Try, we're going to try and get him back on the line. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Hello? Yeah. Hello, I'm here. Yeah. Here we have a problem with the Internet here today for some reason. I don't know why. Okay. Um, are you able to continue, or is it completely non-functional? Sounds like it's not functioning very well. Yeah, maybe the change in time zone when it's confused. Maybe we can go ahead and go with the pet health segment while we get this worked out. Okay. Okay, so here is Zoya's health segment for March the 30th. Hello, and welcome to the Natural Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. Today we are going to talk about kidney diseases. Kidney disease nowadays is one of the most common metabolic diseases in dogs and cats, but identified more frequently in cats than dogs. Some cat breeds have a predisposition to the chronic kidney disease, like Maine Coon, Abyssinian, Siamese, Russian Blue, and Burmese. But dogs and cats may develop chronic kidney disease at any age, but it is more frequent in cats older than 9 years and male cats may develop signs of chronic kidney disease at a younger age than females, males 12 years and females 15 years. In general, causes of chronic kidney disease include malformation of the kidneys at birth, chronic bacterial infections of the kidneys, high blood pressure, immune system disorders, exposure to toxins, chronic urinary tract obstruction, some infectious diseases like feline leukemia can also damage kidneys. Also heavy metal exposure and, as I said, other toxins. Also, of course, a poor quality diet, especially dried and processed food that absorbs water from the body in order to digest food. It can be also stress. Uh, fear as an emotion is also connected with kidney dysfunction. But even with all the potential triggers for kidney disease, often the exact cause can be identified. So how exactly kidneys start to fail? The kidneys are made uh, up of thousands of microscopic tubes called nephrons. The job of nephrons is to filter and reabsorb fluid. In young, healthy animals, there are so many nephrons available that some are held in reserve. And as the animal ages, or for example, if there was any kidney damage, some nephrons stop functioning and the reserve nephrons take over and start functioning for them. At some point in animal's life, all of the nephrons that can function are functioning. With no nephrons left in reserve, as damage to the kidneys progresses, signs of chronic kidney disease will start to reappear. Because of the system uh, of, the re- of, of those reserved nephrons, there are no signs of kidney insufficiency until the damage is really significant. When two-thirds of the nephrons are lost, the kidneys will no longer be able to conserve water and the animal will pass large amounts of dilute uh, urine. By the time that the creatinine levels are elevated, 
uh, in the pet's blood work, 75% uh, of nephrons in both kidneys are gone. So what are the symptoms of chronic kidney diseases, particularly in cats? It can be frequent pain. While you might think that this is a sign your cat's kidneys are working well, it actually means your cat may no longer able to hold water. Peeing outside the litter box is another signal. It can be drinking a lot of water. This means that your cat is trying to replace the fluid they lost through peeing. Bacterial infections of the bladder and kidney, which develop more easily in the dilute pee produced by failing kidneys. Uh, you can observe weight loss and decreased appetite. You can see vomiting, diarrhea, and bloody or cloudy pee. It can be mouth ulcers, especially on the gums and tongue. It can be bad breath with an ammonia-like odor, a brownish-colored tongue, a dry coat, constipation, weakness, and indifference. Basically, all those signs are uh, indicating uh, accumulation of toxins in the body. Uh, kidneys are unable uh, to remove toxins from the body, so the body uh, tries to remove those toxins from any means available through skin, through, uh, through mouth, uh, and, uh, and other things, bad breath and stuff like this. Now, chronic kidney disease is staged depending on the severity. The severity is estimated uh, based on the level of waste products in the blood and abnormalities in the urine. And usually severity of the disease is determined by four stages. All the stages are characterized by creatinine levels in the blood. When uh, first stage, uh, creatinine in first stage is less than 1.6 uh, milligrams per uh, deciliter, and stage 4 is characterized by creatinine levels, levels of over 5 milligrams per uh, deciliter. The amount of protein passed in urine and the presence of elevated blood pressure are also factored uh, into the staging process. So how to treat your pet after you establish that they have kidney damage? First of all, there are fancy and expensive dry food solutions for treating kidney diseases. But as I was explained, they are based on the concept of pets, particularly cats, not drinking enough, especially when on a dry food diet. So this special dry food has higher concentration of salt to increase thirst and cause pets to drink more and therefore to eliminate toxins at the higher rate, a sort of jump start in the kidneys. But it is completely moronic, especially considering the fact that dry food probably caused the problem in the first place. Another ridiculous notion that in case of kidney damage, protein intake should be restricted. It may be so, but only in case of low-grade uh, processed protein. Ideally, in order to treat kidney problems, you need to feed your pet uh, a good variety of high-quality proteins, ideally raw. Do not feed beef, buffalo, or bison, as they have a higher content of inflammatory factors, which affect the immune system function. Uh, avoid so-called low-protein kidney or senior commercial diets. And let me reiterate, avoid dry food. Dry food stresses the kidneys by stealing water from the rest of the body, creating a persistent state of dehydration. If you do not want to feed raw, a canned diet is better than dry.
but canned food uh, can never measure up to natural food. Regarding visitations to a veterinarian, routine chemistry, complete blood count, and, uh, and a urine analysis are essential. Bacterial culture of the urine should always be done to rule out infections. An ultrasound will rule out kidney stones or changes in the shape and size of kidney or even a tumor. But what is super important is to ensure that your cat or dog is well hydrated. If you put the skin on the neck and it stays up for longer than one second, your pet may be dehydrated. Simple administration of electrolyte solutions such as lactated ringers or sodium chloride will help in more advanced stages. Drinking a lot of water may not help to prevent dehydration. Ideally, do not use any anti-inflammatory drugs such as aspirin uh, as it is uh, contraindicated in patients with kidney disease. Now, my teacher at the university recommended uh, enalapril. It's a drug that is medication that modulates the blood pressure. Uh, it, and basically it is used as a maintenance drug. But according to my research, some natural pets say that enalapril is detrimental to the long-term prognosis and causes numerous side effects. Also, since stress is one of the possible reasons uh, for the development of the chronic kidney disease, it would be good to spend quality time with your pet relaxing or being active. Good exercise, not too little or not too much, is a must. Ideally, it is recommended to do two walks a day for dogs and access to the outdoors or the balcony for cats. And don't forget to recheck uh, your pet's condition regularly every three to six months uh, at the minimum. Well, this is it for now. Hope this segment was helpful. Uh, goodbye and have a great day. Thank you, Zoya. Thank you very much for that, Zoya. We're still working on trying to get Dr. Kernline on the line. Uh, please bear with us while we sort through these technical difficulties. <laughs> Well, I wanted to say another comment about the book, you know, because for me it was a huge reality check with my background, you know, with mainstream medicine, you know. I've always been very critical about diagnostic tests. I think, especially in North America, there's a huge influence when we're, where diagnostic tests, you know, they get very relied upon. And um, paradoxically enough, you know, I always thought that standard tests were diagnosing virus infections, they were above this, you know, like they were reliable. And reading this book, I got such a huge reality check. I hope um, the doctor will be able to comment on that because I just realized that, no, that's not reliable at all. So, yeah, was, I guess I did a lot of reality check with this book. Mm. Well, maybe in the meantime, while we're waiting for him to get connected, we could um, cover a couple of the latest uh, health topics that have uh, showed up over the course of the week. Um, I saw a really interesting um, video 
that actually, believe it or not, is up on Time.com, Time Magazine, which is a pretty mainstream source. Um, and it's uh, an interview uh, on French television uh, with um, the, the television station was called Canal Plus. And uh, it's a, an advocate for genetically modified foods. Um, he's apparently part of a group that's uh, promoting the uh, genetically modified golden rice, which has been modified to uh, have higher amounts of vitamin A in it. And anyway, he's going on about how safe uh, glyphosate is, which is the pesticide uh, made by Monsanto, um, <clears throat> otherwise known as Roundup. And he's talking about how safe it is <clears throat> and um, the, uh, all the, the news recently that uh, it's been increasing uh, cancer rates in uh, Argentina. He's arguing that that's not the case. And he says that it's, all, it's so safe that you can drink a glass of it. Well, then <laughs> you got to love this French reporter says to him, well, we have a glass right here. Would you like to drink some? And, of course, he, he's like, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And he said, well, that, so then it's dangerous. And he's like, no, no, it's not dangerous. You, 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 know, you can drink a whole quart of it and it won't hurt you. And he said, well, then well, why don't you, you drink it? Um, and he, he just complete, like, con continues to completely refuse it, despite the fact that he says it's completely safe. Um, he says that even uh, people have tried to commit suicide by drinking it. But and it, yeah. it doesn't actually happen. So he he ends up like walking out on the interview because, uh, well, you know, obviously that contradiction uh, can't stand. So I just thought that was pretty interesting. You can find that on Time.com. Yeah, he would say I'm not stupid, and uh, people are failing miserably trying to commit suicide <laughs> with that. You know, <laughs> he won't touch it. Well, I think it's really uh, interesting timing, Doug, um, because of this uh, whole new uh, World Health Organization document that came out about um, glyphosate and just the the negative impacts of it and, um, you know, just mm -hmm. basically showing what we've been covering on science for several years about the severe toxicity of, of this type of herbicide chemical and um, hopefully if we can get the doctor on he can shed some light on previous chemicals that had the same kind of effect on human health you know but if anybody wants mm -hmm. to check in about this uh, new um, world health document that came out there's a great article on SOT called what's your daily value of glyphosate by uh, Catherine Fromovich Fromovich and um, mm. it just talks about just the science that's coming out. And it's, um, you know, for people who don't know, glyphosate is the, is the highest used herbicide in the world, you know. And it just keeps going up year by year. And, um, you know, we should probably have a whole nother show just focusing on just glyphosate and Roundup itself. Because it seems like mm -hmm. the video that you talked about is it's just damage control. It was related attempted damage news. control, anyway. I don't know, in related news, in the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, who uh, made a link with uh, Monsanto's glyphosate with cancer, you know, this was in mainstream news everywhere, you know. And Monsanto mm -hmm. reacted like that they should withdraw that connection, you know, and it's just like, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I, I love the guy when he's offered this glass of uh, glyphosate. He's, he's like, he's like, no, I'm not stupid. 
but I mean, basically, he's, he's, that's that's saying like you know all the, all of his consumers are stupid because they continually to continue to eat it on a, a regular basis. So he's like, no, I'm not going to drink it. I'm not stupid. But you know, basically, by implication, he's saying that everybody who is taking it in on a, on a regular basis is stupid. So it, it's kind of telling in that way. Yeah, I think it was great of the host, you know, the French host <laughs> to have that. <laughs> to have that. Yeah, totally. Another yeah, news this week, I found an article related to our last show on salt, meats, and benefits. You know, it's titled mm-hmm. Low Salt Diets Are Deadly. You know, and they have a study, they quote a couple of studies which says that even small decreases in sodium content in the diet increase the risk for cardiovascular event and death. But what I found very interesting is that, you know, people on a salt-restricted diet, only after one week, seven days exactly, you know, they develop insulin resistance, which is related with obesity, metabolic syndrome, and very poor health. So, hmm. yes. So there is a call, you know, to, uh, to the FDA to stop putting, you know, restrictions and stuff on salt, you know. It's just going to kill everybody. <laughs> Yeah. So that was a show. Yeah. So don't eat salt, but drink glyphosate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Sounds like a great meal. Keep going, guys. We're still working on it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, Gabby, maybe you can share with us a little bit. Um, Viral viral research? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's one of my, you know, some of of you guys know it's one of my favorite topics. That's why I enjoy this book so much. And what I'm uh, mostly interested is um, because uh, the greatest shock, you know, of genomic science, this is the science of DNA, and our genome and, you know, epigenetics, you know. And they found that the human genome contains more viral uh, than human genes, you know, more virus DNA than human mm-hmm. genes, you know. And it is estimated that only 1% of our genome codes for proteins, you know, and the rest, you know, it's just considered like, in quotes, young DNA. But now in the in the latest years, um, researchers have seen that this viral young DNA actually is very, very active. It has, you know, like epigenetic properties. It, it has like, you know, uh, a role in cancer development. It also is related with stem cell research. So, yes, um, there is a lot of research going on. But, yes, the conclusion is that Young DNA is not young DNA after all. It's very active. And what researchers have seen is that this young DNA is by the most part, it has viral properties, you know, like retroviruses properties and, you know, stuff that I was hoping that the doctor could explain with more detail because he does that in the book, actually. And uh, I find that very interesting because, you know, um, there is also the fact that some uh, toxic food uh, on the food pyramid <laughs> that is recommended by by the USDA at the base, there is grains, there is wheat, 
and wheat has anti-nutrients that have also viral properties, you know. It's called lectins, you know, the lectin from wheat is it pretty much behaves like a virus in the body. So, yes, mm-hmm. there's a lot of speculation going on that, you know, most of our health problems could be from, you know, getting, you know, these DNA activating on a very unhealthy way, like a stress response pretty much. And it's the same topic. Okay, Dr. Gabby, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, we can hear you. We have Dr. I think we have Dr. Kernline on the line. Hello. Very timely. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Welcome, Dr. Kernline. Sorry for yeah. the delay and all the trouble, but I'm glad you're finally here with us. Yeah, I'm sorry, but uh, today here's no internet. There's a uh, I don't know what happens. <laughs> There's no internet. Well, that's okay now. You're here with us, and we. I hear you. Yes. Go ahead and get our interview started. Um, I've already given your bio. Um, the book again. It's called Virus Mania: How the Medical Industry Continually Invents Epidemics, Making Billion Dollar Profits at Our Expense. It's written by Dr. Kernline and his co-author Torsten Engelbrecht. So um, before we get started with the interview, um, if any of our listeners want to call in, you can do so. You can call 718-508-9499. Okay, uh, Dr. Kernline, can you give us a bit of a background on what inspired you and your co-author to write the book Virus Mania? Yes. Well, I'm actually from... very orthodox oncology uh, clinic um, where I did my residency and uh, when the AIDS epidemic <clears throat> came to Germany uh, we had a patient there who was suffering from lymphoma mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they told me this guy has AIDS now and I asked why he has AIDS now yesterday he had lymphoma and then they said, yes, well, he had a, he has a positive HIV test. And then I said, well, but then that's not an epidemic in the classical mm-hmm. sense. It, it's just an epidemic of a new test because the clinical symptom is exactly the same. It's lymphoma. It's nothing else. Mm. That was my my starter, so to say. And nowadays we know 27 old diseases, which are called AIDS, mm-hmm. in the presence of a new antibody test, uh, the, the HIV test. Mm-hmm. So it's not a new epidemic in the classical sense, and spe- especially not in Africa, mm-hmm. where uh, there are a lot of people react positive to this test, but these are cross-reactions because it reacts positive to tuberculosis and lepra- leprosy and things like mm-hmm. that which is very common in Africa. That's why they have a high incidence of HIV. Mm. That doesn't mean that they are highly promiscuous or how they want to propagate this test. (laughs) These are just cross-reactions. That's nothing else. Mm. So um, the the theory is that there's a virus called HIV that causes AIDS. But in your book, you go further into it and how... That's not yeah, we say there, that's indeed a lifestyle problem, not mm-hmm. not an infectious problem, but it's a lifestyle mm-hmm. problem. And these guys 
indeed they suffer from infectious diseases, but it's not HIE which uh, makes the immune system going down, but it's the lifestyle of these people. And mm-hmm. in fact, in fact, it was the first idea the doctors had when AIDS appeared, because these people who were suffering from what we call AIDS now were completely bracket addicts, homosexuals who mm-hmm. had spent at least 10 years going to parties and taking poppers and um, amphetamines and things like that. These were the, the real AIDS victims at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, people then called it GRID for gay-related immune deficiency. And all of a sudden then came Gallo along and uh, came and told the world that they have found a virus which is the probable cause of AIDS and they uh, gave this uh, talk at the uh, at this press um, conference. Uh, they gave it to the world, and everybody believed it from that moment on. Mm. And from that moment on, uh, a positive HIV test meant that you are at risk to get AIDS. Mm. And then the next problem came: the therapy against AIDS. That mm-hmm. was this ACT problem. We gave ACT to people who were HIV positive, who have indeed antibodies to this virus, so they have no problem with this virus, because if you develop antibody to a virus, you are fine. Mm -hmm. But from this moment on, when uh, when Gallo said they they have found the proper cause of AIDS, everybody who had antibody to the virus was uh, subject to ACT treatment, and ACT treatment is a very toxic therapy, which indeed creates the problem which was said that uh, HIV does it. That means H- ACT suppresses the, the bone marrow, it mm-hmm. makes bone marrow lower and lower, and uh, the cells uh, it kills it kills dividing cells. It's it's uh, it's from cancer therapy. The mm-hmm. ACT treatment. It's acetylcholine. It's it stops DNA, so it kills every cell. And the dosage at that time, we started with a dose which was, it was much too high. It was 1,500 milligrams, uh-huh. and doctors didn't know it because or they, they didn't notice the damage because they thought AIDS is a terrible problem, and when when people wasted away. Uh, Doctors thought at that time it was because of HIV, mm. of course, but the, the, no doctor believes that the patient uh, is suffering from the treatment, mm. of course. The doctors yeah. always believe that the, the patient dies in spite of the treatment, not mm. because of it. So, but indeed, those patients... HIV positive at that time died because they got this 1500 milligram ACT. Mm-hmm. And we noticed it then uh, years later that the dosage was much too high. Mm. There was a study uh, in the Lancet, published in the Lancet, the famous Concord study, and this study showed that those who took more ACT had the higher mortality rates. Mm. From that moment on, 
we stopped the ACT and uh, then new drugs came on the market which have less side effects. Mm. So has the HIV virus ever been isolated? Well, it's possible that they have isolated it, but even there are some questions. But I would say, yes, they have isolated a virus, that's mm -hmm. all. And they called it then HIV so that everybody knows what it does. Yeah. But they just isolated the virus from a patient who was suffering from lymphoma, that's all. Mm -hmm. so, so really, And they gave them this name then. So this is just some fragment of something that they called HIV. Yeah, and then... some fragment of DNA. Well, uh -huh. the isolating business was not very good. Uh, even Montagnier suggested that it hasn't been properly isolated. Okay. Who got the Nobel Prize for it? Uh-huh. So there are all these people that are diagnosed with AIDS, allegedly called by the HIV virus, but with Without the harmful treatments, they would be still alive or they'd be healthier? Like, say, for instance, Magic Johnson? Yeah, we uh, we certainly killed a whole generation of AIDS patients with this high dosage without even noticing it. That's a big uh, problem with this therapy. Magic Johnson is still alive. Yeah. He was smart enough to know, uh, to, to feel that ACT wasn't good for him. He stopped it immediately. Mm -hmm. And he won a golden a gold medal afterwards, but other other victims were not so lucky, like Rudolf Nureyev, who took ACT, and Arthur Ashe, who took ACT, and uh, the, the singer of the Queens, who was it again? Well, he, Freddie he Mercury. Had, uh, Freddie Mercury, yes, he he had of of course some some illicit drugs as well, but mm -hmm. then he got the legal drugs, and that was the rest for him. Yeah. So I'm trying to wrap my, my brain around what exactly is a virus. It sounds like it's just fragments of DNA that they sample from people, and then they give it a name. But um, I yes, was reading... Yes, the problem today is that you don't even uh, need an electron microscope. Mm -hmm. you, they have genetic uh, engineering, and they, they, they do it with gene, gene sequencing. Mm -hmm. They said they have viruses there and then create whole whole, whole uh, evolution trees of viruses without even seeing it in the in, under the microscope. And that's not a good idea, I think. I think mm -hmm. if, especially if you want to make sure that the virus is causally linked to the disease, mm -hmm. you have to show at least once, you have to show the virus in the infect tissue. If you can't do it, it's just an assumption, a hypothesis that this virus does any harm. Mm -hmm. That's not a that's not a, a device. Uh, how you say? So basically, these doctors are working on an assumption because I was reading over Koch's postulates, the four postulates, like the first one that says oh, that. Yes. The organism has to be present in every case of the disease, and the organism yes, has to be right. isolated from the host and cultivated in a culture. And then the samples must cause the same disease when injected into a lab animal. And then the inoculated animal must have the same organism as found in the original host. So it sounds yes. like, at least with the AIDS virus, that none of these Koch's post postulates have been met. Yeah, that's true. 
they, they did. They tried to do it. They, they, they tried to isolate HIV and they injected it. What they isolated, they injected it into chimpanzees at that time. But the, the chimpanzees didn't come down with AIDS. Mm-hmm. They are still living. Mm. One of them, one of them uh, was written in, in the science, Shimp finally come down with AIDS and this, this animal developed diarrhea. Mm. <laughs> so uh, all the other animals never got AIDS. So there mm-hmm. is no animal model for it. Okay. <laughs> There's so much to this AIDS amidem- epidemic. We, we suggested then we yeah. we suggested then to treat the animals with ACT, and then we would have seen that ACT is the toxic problem mm. and not the the virus. Yeah. Well, your your book goes into several other viral illnesses besides AIDS. I mean, we could talk about AIDS all day, but um, yes. if our listeners want to uh, find out more about this, definitely pick up a copy of the book Virus Mania, and you can check out yes, House of Numbers. The big problem today online. is uh, the hepatitis C that mm. was the following uh, epidemic, and it's it's even. It's even more curious because uh-huh. the hepatitis C, the, nobody has seen the hepatitis C virus. Yeah. I, I must begin from the beginning. <laughs> there Go is ahead. a hepatitis which is called non-A, non-B. Mm-hmm. There was not A, it was not B. We have we know the A and the B, but there was another sort of hepatitis, the so-called post-transfusion hepatitis, after, after you got a blood uh, sample. Mm-hmm. Blood uh, transfusion, then some people develop uh, hepatitis, the so-called non-A, non-B, and the virologist thought there might be another infectious agent, and they wanted to find it, and then they injected blood from a patient with a non-A, non-B into chimpanzees, uh-huh. and looked at the animals, but the animals didn't get sick and nothing happened. And they killed the animals, looked at the liver, and couldn't find anything. He could, uh, in the end, they found a little string of RNA, uh, DNA, which didn't seem to belong to the code of the, to the genetic code of the animal. And they thought maybe that's the virus. And mm-hmm. they, they engineered an antibody against it. And this hepatitis C antibody, he, this was called an hepatitis C. And everybody who reacts against this antibody nowadays mm-hmm. is said, well, you have a problem, you have hepatitis C, and uh, you will develop liver cirrhosis most probably in the next 30 years. And this is the long incubation period. Mm. Uh, with viruses, there are no such incubation periods, uh, mm. not, not years and not decades. Mm-hmm. It's, it's weeks normally. <laughs> yeah. But in these cases, they say, no, well, in, for AIDS, it's 10 years, and for hepatitis C, it's 30 years. Mm-hmm. And then the pharmaceutical industry is very quick to develop some uh, other new drugs. And now they sell a new drug for one, uh, for $1,000 per pill. Mm. That's the most, that's the, the recent development. Mm. You pay $1,000 for one pill to treat a disease which is not even there. People oh. have, have, have no symptoms. In mm-hmm. most cases, they have no symptoms at all. So is this another case of like uh, the AZT treatment for AIDS? Yes. So what's it's this similar mean? to AZT. It's not, 
Well, we, we have learned, I would say, we have learned to to do the dosage so that people can survive it because mm-hmm. even the pharmaceutical industry has no interest to kill the people because then they are not taking any pills anymore. And if you're not so taking pills, you can't have, pay. We have, we have to have the patients chronically ill. That mm-hmm. That's what makes money. So mm-hmm. we, we need to make them chronically ill and we give them uh, these antiviral drugs which don't kill them uh, and we have a, a laboratory parameter which is the so-called viral load mm-hmm. which you can lower with these drugs and the FDA. In that moment you, when you can show that you can lower viral load with the drugs then the FDA approves the new drugs and then the pharmaceutical industry uh, can earn money with it and that's the development of the last years um, Gilead has these new drugs and uh, they have uh, millions of profits because of these drugs billions mm-hmm. I would say because HCV positive people are not very rare in some countries you have a prevalence of 1% that's a lot mm-hmm of your population. Okay, well, I wanted to uh, offer up a quote from from the book, Virus Mania, just to uh, clarify some things for our listeners. Um, This is on page 27 of the book, and it says, This book's central focus is to steer this discussion back to where, as any scientific debate, it belongs, on the path to prejudice-free analysis of facts. To clarify one more time, the point is not to show that diseases like cervical cancer, SARS, AIDS, or hepatitis C do not exist. No serious critic of reigning virus theories has any doubt that people or animals are or could become sick, although many are not really sick at all, but are only defined as sick and then are made sick or killed. Instead, the central question is, what really causes these diseases known as cervical cancer, avian flu, SARS, AIDS, and hepatitis C? Is it a virus, or is it a virus in combination with other causes, or is it not a virus at all, but rather something very different? So it seems like uh, there's a singular fixation on viruses while they ignore all the other factors that contribute to illness like the health status of the person, their nutritional status, uh, the sanitation, uh, maybe some vaccine injuries, environmental poisoning, uh, the improper treatment like with the uh, antivirals and the AZT, or sometimes they'll rename or reclassify a disease as something else. Yes. Well, uh, uh, people don't don't, uh, know it because it's always a little bit hidden, but if you if you um, can make a disease an infectious disease, mm-hmm. then, then the millions are flowing because then you need the antibody business, you have the therapy business, and uh, it's and the vaccination business in the background. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why, for instance, also Ebola is such a big thing. It's in reality, it's not a big thing. It's a it's a small thing in in Africa where, where a lot of people are suffering from nutrition problems and have a weak immune system, and of course mm-hmm. they are 
susceptible for any kinds of, of uh, viral diseases and bacterial diseases. Um, so you always find there sick people. But uh, it's what you should do is to make the the, the hygienical and the, the nutrition situation better in these countries, and then you would see that infectious diseases fade away, like. Mm-hmm like they did in all the developed countries. You can look at it. In that moment when there's no war, when the people are getting better, when they have enough to eat, then the infectious diseases go down. Mm. And if you look at the statistical curves, then you see that the infectious disease faded away very in front of the vaccination. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's the the true reason um, for infectious diseases to go away, that the immune system of the population is getting better, Mm -hmm. not the vaccination. The vaccination is just creating problems. It's it's useless. Well, there's been a huge, huge uh, vaccine campaigns going on in Africa. Do you think that that could play a part in this Ebola outbreak? Excuse me, I didn't. There's very large uh, uh, vaccine campaigns that's been going on in Africa for years and years. Do you think that that could be playing a part in the Ebola outbreak? Yeah, I know. Bill Gates is is one of the persons who are urging people to get uh, the polio vaccine, for instance. Uh And especially polio, we, we have in our book as well is most probably an, an intoxication disease, not an infectious disease as well. We we looked at the, di- at the data of polio very carefully, and when you look at them, then you see that the, the, the serious polio epidemics occurred when uh, DDT was used in very much, very big amounts, because at that time it was not known that DDT is a very serious uh, toxin for for the nervous for the central nervous system mm-hmm. and it, cum- it accumulates in the in the nutritional uh, uh, kette mm-hmm. in the in the nahrungskette how you say it in english uh, mm. it, it it accumulates so yeah. it, it, in the end you have it in the in the breast milk uh-huh. And you feed your offspring with it, and uh-huh. then you can get such high concentration that it's really damaging the nervous system. That could be the real cause of, of polio. Uh-huh. And I- when you look at the curves, then um, the polio disappeared with with uh, with uh, DDT um, disappearance because then we knew the toxicologist found out that DDT is a very serious um, toxin. Mm-hmm. And then we used it much more carefully, mm. and then the curve goes down in mm-hmm. front of the vaccination. The vaccination followed. Well, Erica, are you there? Did you have a question about uh, glyphosate? About what? Yes. Uh, our co-host Erica wants to ask a question. Yeah. Yes. Um, I I was fascinated by your chapter on um, the polio vaccine and. Um, just for listeners, it's called Polio, Pesticides, DDT, and Heavy Metals Under Suspicion. And yeah, you just yes, addressed yes, a, yes. A, lo- a lot of my questions there. 
um, we had a discussion before the show, um, and you may or may not have heard that portion of the show, but we were wondering if now the new types of herbicides coming out, like glyphosate in Monsanto's um, Roundup product, if we could, um, if these are the same kinds of things that we see with DDT, that these uh, new herbicides that they're saying are safe enough to drink could be causing, you know, all these immune-suppressed issues, um, gut bacteria, proliferation of negative gut bacteria and whatnot. We're interested on your take on that. Well, I have, I didn't get in this problems with Monsanto and the, and the gene problems, but it is, in fact, possible that this creates a lot of problems as well, but I'm not familiar with that. I just mm -hmm. checked the polio problem and um, when, I, when we checked it, it, first I had a discussion with my co-author and I asked him not to put it in the book because polio is, is the disease which, which the orthodox medicine believes have eradicated with vaccination. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the infectious disease. And when we put it in the book, no orthodox will ever read the book, we thought. But mm -hmm. then I looked in our textbook and found that the, the clinical symptoms of polio is indistinguishable from poisoning of heavy metal and insecticides and so on. Mm -hmm. And then we looked, like we did it in AIDS, we looked for an animal model. And we couldn't find one. There is no animal model in polio as well. Mm. It just grew a virus on, on kidney cells and then made a vaccination against that virus. It was a normal antivirus. And when you look at the book, only 1% of those who have this virus get sick. So it's very probable that this is another mistake in the medical textbooks. Mm. But it's still in there, unfortunately. <laughs> Okay, if we can, um, can we switch to um, the bovine spongiform encephalopathy? Encephalopathy, or, yes. Or BSE, which is responsible for the uh, mad cow outbreak some years back yeah, in yeah, 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Can you give us some more information on what was really behind that? Yeah, that was most probably that was another case of intoxication because uh, it was it was indeed a discussion in the BSE investigations, mm. but uh, you can uh, uh, you see that there was there were members of the of the government and members of uh, those who made these uh, pesticides from the pharmaceutical cartel, and they didn't want to come to to make this idea come come out because. Mm -hmm. The idea was that, um, or the suggestion was from some uh, scientists, that indeed uh, the high dosage of phosmate, which is an insecticide, an organophosphate, mm -hmm. which was um, applied on the cow's neck in order uh, to, uh, in order against the dazzle fly, the, the warble fly, which uh -huh. is an insect. You know that one? Yeah. The fly? 
So they spread this. They, they do. They, they make a disease neck. in the cows that uh-huh. the, the milk production goes down and so on. They, they, the animals get sick, and that, that's why the farmers were obliged to, to put these pesticides in a higher dosage in the neck of the cows. Uh-huh. And after the, and it was, it was indeed a um, legal, uh-huh. illegal thing. So the the, the government decided that the farmers have to increase the dosage of these phosphate mm-hmm. in England, Northern Ireland, and Switzerland. And in those countries, we found BSE after a while. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very likely that these uh, toxins caused the problem. Mm-hmm. But then somebody had the idea that it's, uh, it's uh, infectious meat, mm-hmm. which... Uh, which was uh, uh, which the cows got for for food, mm-hmm. and uh, they forgot the fact that this um, tear meal, this animal meal, what it was, was uh, they, they they put thousands of tons of this food to the Middle East, and mm-hmm. nobody got BSE there. So the mm-hmm. the epidemiology. It talks something different. It talks direct against it. So it's much more likely that it was an intoxication problem also. So everyone was afraid so the to eat test steak was, and hamburgers for no reason except that the, yeah, yeah. Nobody, the farmers used nobody the took, Nobody got uh, meat anymore here in Germany also. Uh-huh. The, 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 the meat market was down and... It has terrible consequences. Some farmers suicided, mm. and uh, it was a very terrible time. And uh, they had also these predictions, which never came true. They had these predictions that all those people who ate this this beef meat would uh, would get uh, this BSE. You mm-hmm. know, you remember that they were the same predictions that they did for AIDS mm-hmm. at that time, because for AIDS they said, well. It's infectious. It's sexually transmitted, and it's com- and it's deadly. And then they they had some uh, very clever mathematicians who who did who created some new curves, exponential curves. Mm. And then you could see that after ten years, almost everybody in Germany would have contracted AIDS, and two two years later is dead. But you all know that this has never um, come true. No. So the predictions were all completely wrong, and that's another sign that the hypothesis is wrong mm-hmm. if the predictions don't come true. Probably the, the only uh, prediction that came true is that they would make billions of dollars, in which they yeah, did. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they did. With the BSE test, they made also some some millions, but, um, well, this thing stopped there then. Mm-hmm. But uh, Prozina, who got the Nobel Prize for the idea that these prions were uh, in this meat, um, he he wanted to have a BSE test in humans. Mm-hmm. And then, indeed, we could have had the same situation. So if that would have developed, then um, every blood conserve would have been tested against BSE, and then uh, everybody who has got the blood conserve would have to do a BSE test mm. and so on and so on and you you would have after a while maybe uh, some the pharmaco- pharmaceutical industry would have 
develop some antiprionic treatment, and then mm-hmm. you've had, you have had the same situation, yeah, like in AIDS. But well, this obviously stopped because the new variant of the Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease never never appeared, only yeah. in very very few cases. And there we had, I found the picture in the Lancet. Mm-hmm from the distribution of um, BSE and another picture uh, I found in Nature from the distribution of um, the new variant of the Kreuzfeldt-Jakob disease. Mm-hmm. And it was indeed uh, an inverse correlation. So you found the new variant of the Kreuzfeldt-Jakob disease in the north of Schotland and you found BSE in the south of England. So it mm-hmm. was indeed a reverse correlation that really showed that uh, these both has nothing to do with each other. And the, the Kreutzfeldt-Jakob the, the the, disease, the, the, the disease is a genetical right. disease, and it had nothing to do with an infectious particle. Okay. Well, um, your book, you also talked about SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome. SARS, yes. Yeah. Can you talk about that and how it was tied to the the scrap technology that was going on in Guangdong province in China? I didn't get the last sentence. In your book, you talked about the the scrap technology workers that that were in Guangdong province in China and how that was tied into the SARS outbreak. Yeah. Well, in SARS, they found a microbe, which is indeed a harmless microbe, but um, the people in in China are working under very bad conditions, and so even a harmless virus can create problems with with pneumonia. Mm. But uh, the the most important thing, I think, in SARS was another case of over-treatment, because Uh In this respiratory distress system, uh, symptoms, when, when people are having a real pneumonia, then uh, sometimes uh, doctors uh, take cortisone and ribavirin, which they did in these cases. And that's, that can be really a, a dilemma mm. because on the, on the one side, cortisone helps if you have a really uh, problem with your breathing because it kills the lymphocytes, but in the same moment it suppresses your immune system, which you need in this situation very mm-hmm. urgently. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think there was even the, the, the man who has given the name, the, 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 the first victim, what was his name again? I just uh, I think he was a doctor. Yeah, he was a doctor. Ah, yes, Carlo Urbani. Yeah, Carlo Urbani. He, he described this problem, and he he died of it. Mm-hmm. And we looked at the treatment he received, and it was ribavirin plus cortisone. Ribavirin is a another nucleoside analogon which which kills cells. And that's so an antiviral as well. It's another antiviral drug which mm-hmm. is given a very high dosage, and I'm really afraid that Carlo Urbani died because of the treatment, not in spite of the treatment, but because of the treatment. Okay. So and what he, ab- he made it famous. Uh-huh. What about uh, bird flu, or H5N1? Um, about mid-2005, 100 million chickens were dead, but yeah. it sounds like the majority of those were killed in mass exterminations. 
to prevent the spread of the alleged H5N1 virus? What are some of the factors that played out in the the bird flu epidemic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bird flu is another problem. It's 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 very old. We know this problem since many years, and it's a problem of of the bad uh, situations of the of the of the animals. Mm-hmm. They are they are treated with many many antibiotics and things like that, and then they they are of, of course very um, susceptible to to disease. They die very easily if you if you if you get if if they get any viruses. Uh-huh. But the the problem was that somebody um, some people uh, said that it could be transmissible to humans, and that humans died because of bird flu. And there again, we have this problem with the overtreatment, and also the the creating of an epidemic mm-hmm. uh, is is seen here again with the distribution of a new test of the antibody test. It was mm-hmm. a, another test epidemic, like the swine flu. They just created a new test, and we have always flu. Flu is very widespread. You can always find flu, and if you do a test against H5 and Ains, and it's positive, then you say it's a bird flu. You can't, mm-hmm. you can't, you can't um, differentiate it clinically. Mm-hmm. It's the same clinical disease, and it's just separated by another test. Mm-hmm. So you always can create the flu, a new flu epidemic with a new antibody test, like they did then with a, like they tried again with a sli- with a swine flu. Which was nonsense. There appeared there, there were no swine flu anywhere. So, are these tests even calibrated for the specific viruses that they're looking for? Excuse me. Oh. Are the tests calibrated for the specific viruses? Yes, for one, for one specific virus. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Okay. So I was wondering exactly what they were studying when they run these tests if all they're dealing with are DNA fragments. So they have to calibrate each test for each DNA frag- fragment that they find. Yeah. Okay. They have always to calibrate a new test against some fragments of DNA or RNA. Uh-huh. And that's the problem of modern uh, genetics. They never do uh, Cox postulates. Uh-huh. They never do... Uh, uh, this causal uh, uh, relationship, they just they just rely on correlation, mm-hmm. and uh, but correlation is not causation. That's a very simple uh, statement. But uh, <clears throat> nowadays we believe in correlation. If there is a good mm-hmm. uh, correlation, then you say a. Uh, is caused by B, but mm-hmm. it's not. Um, Gabby, did you have a question about testing or about what? Yes, well, I had. Doctor uh, Gabby has a question. I had two or three questions. You know, maybe you can expand. Uh, in the book, you explain about uh, the concepts of exogenous infective particles versus endogenous ones. Can you explain a little bit Excuse more me, about I, I cannot, that? I cannot understand. 
Can you explain the difference between exogenous particles and endogenous particles? Oh, yeah. Well, we have endogenous uh, viruses in our cells. Mm -hmm. That's what uh, Professor de Haven described in his uh, scientific life. So, um, And when the cell dies for some reason, then these endogenous viruses can go into the bloodstream. And if they have the sequences, we react H, which the HCV antibody test, then you are HCV antibody positive mm -hmm. after a while. So you can be HCV positive without getting any blood transfusion or without getting any contact from, from outside. You can react positive endogenous. Mm -hmm. And that's probably also true for HIV. Mm. It's just a reaction against DNA or RNA, which is free in your bloodstream. And mm. many people have free DNA in the blood. It's, uh, and, and if it's, it has the sequences which are picked up by these antibody tests, then mm. you, your serum reacts antibody positive after a while. And uh, but that doesn't mean that it has a, uh, that that doesn't have a clinical meaning. Mm. So essentially, um, all of us have these particles within our bloodstream, and these tests are just picking that up. But that would just mean it's a false positive test. It doesn't mean that you're actually yeah, it's, it's, it's a false positive, mm -hmm. and there is indeed a correlation between HIV HIV positivity and disease. Mm -hmm. There is a correlation, but it's not a causation. So people who have free DNA in their serum have sometimes problems mm -hmm. uh, like uh, like cancer, for instance. Some some people are suffering from cancer and uh, because of the high turnover of the cells, uh, you have these fragments in your serum and you are more probable to react positive. Mm -hmm. That's why it's a surrogate marker, as we call it. But it has no causally, it's not causally linked to disease. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. And many people who are HIV positive and have no other risk factors, they are not at risk for anything. They are not at risk for getting AIDS. That's what I see in my, in my long clinical praxis. Mm -hmm. Only those have a risk for getting problems with the immune system who have taken drugs for a long time. Mm. That's, those, are, those are indeed at risk for getting uh, infectious diseases and, for instance, of getting um, fungi, fungal diseases, mm -hmm. which are really can, can get really dangerous. And in these cases, in these cases, the treatment, the antiviral treatment nowadays helps because it's fungostatic as we say. It, it mm -hmm. kills also the fungus and uh, then people can get better which are which have been sick before. That's why the discussion about the HIV AIDS hypothesis is so, uh, so hard to do with orthodox uh, mm -hmm. with the orthodox doctors because they have seen nowadays people who are sick, who are HIV positive, who get the antiviral drugs and who are better afterwards. 
Mm-hmm. So you really, as a doctor who has not this background, you believe the young doctors nowadays believe that HIV is a curable, it's a treatable disease because you have these cases. But uh, uh, in reality, HIV has causally nothing to do with anything. So when people who have these fungal infections start the the antiviral drugs and it kills off the fungus and they feel better, but they continue with the antiviral drugs, is that a problem? No, they should stop it then. Yeah. They should stop it after a while and and change the lifestyle because most of them have a lifestyle mm-hmm. which creates these problems. And if uh, if people can change the lifestyle and have a healthy lifestyle, that means they sleep enough, they have enough food, they have a good exercise program, mm-hmm. and uh, then they will recover probably. But mm-hmm. if you stick the antiviral drugs for your life, well, nowadays you can stand these drugs much better than in the old days, in the mm-hmm. old ACT days, but still you are uh, eldering uh, much faster mm-hmm. because you are always subject to a DNA-killing treatment. Okay, Gabby, did you have another question? You said you had a few questions. Yeah, uh, Dr. Conley, if you can explain the influence of the CDC in the field of virology, the Center for Control of Disease and Prevention of the United States. You mean the role of the CDC? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, well, the, these uh, these CDC. Uh, is superfluous since many times since uh, infectious diseases disappeared in the in the developed countries. We have the same CDCs here in Germany, which is the Robert Koch Institute, mm-hmm. and uh, we we in reality we have no problems with infectious diseases because everybody has enough to eat and everybody is fine. The the the, the situation of the people is is very good. Infectious diseases are only a very slow percentage of uh, the causes of death in the mm-hmm. developed countries. Most people die of heart, heart and, and, and cancer diseases, not, mm-hmm. not infectious diseases. And, the, well, the CDC and the Robert Koch Institute, they claim that the vaccination programs have made this good situation that the infectious diseases disappeared. But, uh, indeed, if you look at the statistics, you can easily see and find out that not the vaccination programs were the reason, but the the good immunological situation of the people were the, the real reason that infectious diseases disappeared in the post-war periods. Because the, especially measles, for instance, we just had this measles outbreak here and a big discussion in the TV. Mm-hmm. You can easily see that the deaths of measles, we have very good data for this in the Statistical Bundesamt in Germany, that the deaths of measles were already completely down before the vaccine programs Mm -hmm. came on the market. So it's very easy to see that something else must have been the real reason 
that infectious diseases disappeared and not the vaccination program. So I would say you can stop vaccination and the, vac- and the infectious diseases wouldn't come back. And the CDC, of course, claim the opposite. They say if you stop the vaccination programs, then we will have a revival of all infectious diseases. But we have a lot of proof already that the infectious diseases never come back because we stopped, for instance, tuberculosis vaccination because we found out that tuberculosis vaccination is is detrimental mm. for people. It's not useful, but it's detrimental. They have made very good tests in India. They vaccinated one um, population with BCG and the other with placebo, and they found out that the vaccination population, the vaccinated population, had much more tuberculosis than the unvaccinated. And from that, that was 20 years ago. From that moment on, it took more than 20 years that uh, that uh, tuberculosis vaccination comes came off the market here in Germany. My daughter, um, who is 24 now, should should uh, get the tuberculosis vaccination, and I refused at that time because I I didn't see the danger of tuberculosis in Germany. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have no tuberculosis, only very few cases. And, well, we stopped this vaccination, tuberculosis didn't come back. For diphtheria, it's the same. Mm-hmm. Only one-third of the adult uh, population has has uh, uh, vaccination against diphtheria, and nobody gets diphtheria. So it's a classical... These are classical diseases of mm-hmm. bad times, post-war periods, and so on, or, or, or bad nutritional countries like Africa and mm-hmm. India. And that's where you have to work to get these people, to get them a better nutrition mm-hmm. and clean drinking water, and that would help, but not the vaccination programs. Okay. Thank you for that information. It sounds like... Um As long as a person's nutritional status is good, their immune system is good, they have clean drinking water, they have enough to eat, they're not uh, compromising their immune system through multiple vaccines, it sounds like infectious diseases are really not a thing to worry about. Yeah, that's right. That's a very good summary. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Could you uh, talk a little bit about... um, Louis Pasteur and his germ theory and how that uh, kind of goes against the terrain hypothesis from people like uh, Antoine Béchamp or Claude Bernard. Louis Pasteur, yeah. Yeah. Well, he was the one who who said at his deathbed that it's not the microbe, it's the terrain. (laughs) Yeah. But he he said it very, very late. Mm Mm-hmm. And also, Pettenkofer, a uh, man in Germany, uh, Apotheka, Pettenkofer, who had a, a fight with Robert Koch, mm-hmm. he uh, he asked from him to get a culture of Vibro, Vibrio cholera, a cholera bacterium. Mm-hmm. He wanted to show Koch that's not the microbe, but it's the environment, it's the immune system which makes people sick. And he drank uh, a culture of 
vibrio cholera. So he drank cholera bacteria. Mm. And he just, he, well, he got a little bit diarrhea, but nothing serious. And he, he wrote to Robert Koch, well, I'm still fine. I just drank uh, cholera bacteria. But I'm, I have a little bit uh, stomach ache and a little bit diarrhea, but that's all. Mm-hmm. Because Koch was the man, the, 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 the microbe man. He he was uh, he he thinks that the microbes is the center and we have to we have to move uh, away from the micro uh, centric mm-hmm. <laughs> to the microcentric area to the immunologic area because the immune system is the the point mm-hmm. who which which makes you sick or not. If your immune system is working, you have nothing to worry about. And if it's not working, and there are many problems uh, how to kill your immune system, and most, the most serious problems are drugs, illicit drugs, mm-hmm. and also uh, some legal drugs, mm-hmm. like all the, uh, these antiviral drugs. They are all immunosuppressive because they are all killing DNA. Mm. So you create in treating them, you create the problem you want to treat. That's the problem with with these antiviral drugs. Okay. Well, uh, are there any other questions, Erica or Gabby, that you wanted to ask Dr. Caroline before we wrap up? No, I think he covered it great. I I did want to mention one fascinating fact in your book was that on the two different instances that the CDC was about to be dismantled. I think the first one you said was in 1949. Uh, They were going to dismantle the CDC, and then uh, a new epidemic came up. Yep. And then again in 1990. Yeah. Yeah, the the CDC, yeah, they, they were... They had had nothing more to do, not so much because, and then then came AIDS, mm-hmm. and they had a not yeah. a new a new epidemic which they had to fight, and then they made this war against AIDS, and uh, well, you know the rest. Then they, mm-hmm. they, they created this epidemic by by uh, getting more and more diseases on the list of the AIDS defining diseases, which are now 27 diseases, 27 well-known diseases, like cancer of the lymph nodes, well, lymphoma or tuberculosis, mm-hmm. or some fungal diseases. They are all called AIDS now if you have antibodies against HIV. So it's it's just an old disease. It's an it's an it's a new epidemic of old diseases. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it seems like we've come to the end of our time, Doctor Conline. You wanted to be on for yes. about an hour. Um, yes. I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to be on the show and sharing all this information with us. Again, for our listeners, the book is called Virus Mania, How the Medical Industry Continually Invents Epidemics, Making Billion-Dollar Profits at Our Expense. The book is available on Amazon.com, and if you really want a fascinating read, pick it up. It's well worth it. I want to thank you again, Dr. Conline, for being on the Talk Radio. Yeah, I thank you. you. I thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Have a great time. Yeah. Bye-bye. Have a good night. Thank you.
was that was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other last yeah, comment we'll... I had, it was not really a question, it was a comment because he goes in the book, mm -hmm. uh, he has a section on failed inspection attempts where he quotes the book Influenza by Gina Colata, which is a journalist. And mm -hmm. they basically like, you know, they have very sick people with the flu and they took their secretions and placed them, you know, on healthy people, but in the most invasive way. And not a single man got sick, you know, which shows how, yeah. you know, if you have a good terrain, how healthy you could be. You know? Yeah, I was reading about that, too. I think it was during the, the Spanish flu, 1918, 1919. And they took the mucus and they sprayed it in the mouths of healthy people and they didn't get sick. And then they had the healthy men breathe in the, the sick breath of the sick men and talk with them for five minutes <laughs> to try to yeah. recreate the conditions that people would get sick in. And none of them got sick at all. So, yeah, this is great information. Yeah, I must be doing something right because everybody was sick with the flu this winter and I didn't got it. So, <laughs> I'm not going to wood. But no, yeah. I didn't get it either. <laughs> so, keep your immune systems healthy. Stay clean. Don't take vaccines. Don't do illegal drugs, as the doctor said. And there's lots of pharmaceutical drugs that ruin your DNA and lower your immunity, too. So avoid pharmaceuticals as much as you can. Definitely. Yeah. There was a really interesting quote in his book that I just wanted to share by Leo Tolstoy. Uh, Man prefers mm -hmm. to perish rather than change his habits. I think that definitely applies to what you're talking about, a lifestyle and diet change and mm -hmm. um, awareness as well. So, does that sound like our show for this week? Well, maybe we can just talk really briefly, um, if the other co-hosts have time, about this um, this virus mania and how they use fear to, you know, he covered it pretty well. But maybe mm -hmm. some of the other co-hosts want to address a little bit of that fear-mongering that he went into in the first part of his book. Yeah, I think um, <clears throat> a lot of it seems to uh, um, come from kind of these institutions that, that kind of have to, um, you know, they, they owe their entire existence to the fact that, that people believe in what they're saying and and they, they need to keep on kind of promoting this fear. I'm talking specifically about like the CDC and things like that. Um, just because like, you know, if, pe if, if people actually um, were aware of, of what is in this book, um, the CDC would be completely finished. It wouldn't exist yeah. anymore um, because their mm -hmm. their entire mandate is to promote things like vaccines and things like that, which basically are complete bunk. So it's mm -hmm. it's really um, interesting to see all the the kind of fear mongering and the stuff. You know, all the every year there's some kind of new major epidemic that everybody has to worry about and get vaccinated for and all these kinds of things. When you know this, it's basically just it, it's like their PR. It's like their way of mm -hmm. justifying their own existence. And they come up with all yeah. these predictions that did not come true. And I think the media, not just the CDC, but the media is very complicit in spreading this fear as well, because they're the ones running the news stories, uh, mm -hmm. you know, having the, the evening news and in the newspapers spreading all this stuff. So I think 
they're just as responsible as the CDC. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I wanted to funny. share one of the, the quotes that um, he had in his book that I found really fascinating. It says, we are witnessing epidemics of fear. Both media and big pharma industry carry most of the responsibility for amplifying fears and reshaping dogma perpetuated in a quasi manner. And we can really see this now in this whole pro-vaccination movement that's happening. Mm -hmm. Because an important point and tool is to keep dissenting voices out of the debate and it's Mm -hmm. censorship at various levels ranging from popular media to scientific publications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mean. it's like fear is the actual virus. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I think it highlights how the CDC, you know, developed to have such a huge influence in the whole medical field. And it basically totally eclipsed what is environmental medicine, the importance of detoxifying heavy metals and toxicity in general and the importance of having a good nutrition, you know. Yep. It all seems to come back to that for sure. Mm-hmm. So the my other big question is, no, sorry, what go ahead. is all this money, all this money being spent, all these thousands and thousands of hours spent in the lab studying for what? Yeah. When they can just... Clean up nutrition, clean up sanitation, and everything would be okay. And maybe, you know, maybe the science would actually be good if they were... The gigantic waste involved. Well, it might actually be good if they were were actually, you know, looking in the right direction. But because the kind of the the, the virus thing has caught on so much, it's like you can't... There's nobody out there who's looking in the right direction at all. They're all kind of... Um, you know, diverted into this this completely wrong direction. And one thing that I found mm-hmm. really interesting about the interview here is how how like he's just going over what an inexact science this all is too. Like I had mm-hmm. no idea that things were were so kind of like based on like best guesses. You know, it's not there's there's no precision to it at all, which kind of is mind blowing. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And all, all the. No, yeah, yeah the, gold, the gold standard test never gets used, which is the electron microscope, so you can see the virus. You know. mm-hmm. Yeah, but all all the lives wasted, all the AIDS patients that died unnecessarily, yeah. all the animals that had to be cold because of this virus hysteria or virus yeah. mania. It makes me angry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Definitely. definitely. So everybody get a copy of the book. It's really fantastic. Mm-hmm. You'll learn a lot. <laughs> It'll open your eyes to the whole theory of infectious diseases. Yeah. Yes, and also the documentary. Can you give the name again, Tiffany? Because I had an opportunity to oh. watch that last night, and it really added some, some you know, real-life scenarios about how people even view diseases like HIV and AIDS. Mm. Yeah, the documentary is called House of Numbers, Anatomy of an Epidemic, and I do think it's available on YouTube. Yes. Yep. Just one last thing, you know, uh, the question remains, uh, because uh, he quotes in his book that genetic material, you know, in human beings can constantly alter, you know, by being hit by shocks, either heavy metals, 
you know, bad nutrition, environmental stress, you know, psychological stress, information of new genetic sequences, which were unverifiable before. So the question remains, you know, our young DNA contains endogenous viruses, which can be potentially lethal, you know, or activated with the right trigger, you know. Mm. That's the mm -hmm. interesting line of research. We'll follow mm -hmm. that. <laughs> <laughs> Keep your eyes on shot. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like uh, that's our show for today. You can catch us next week. We're on every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can also check out our other SOT Talk Radio Network shows, The Truth Perspective, on Saturdays at 2 p.m. Eastern and Behind the Headlines on Sundays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Jonathan, do you want to take us out? Have a great day, everybody. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.